theyeshiva.net. This morning or this afternoon, who I am so privileged to interview, I feel like this is a highlight in my career. And so it is my pleasure first to welcome you, Y.Y. Jacobson, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, to share a little bit of your background, which is so illustrious, and we could spend an hour talking about it because you literally sat at the feet of the Rebbe. So we're going to talk a lot about that, but that experience drove you to become a worldwide educator. You've published over a thousand uh, teachings and writings. I understand that you are beloved because it is not just your Torah, which is so uh, brilliant, but it's your wicked sense of humor, your spirit. And what I loved most about everything we've talked about is that when I asked you to highlight one of the things that's most important to you, you highlighted the kindness of your wife and how special she is, which is a true testament to your character. So welcome, we're delighted you're here. Thank you, it's my honor and privilege. Thank you for the opportunity and the great privilege. And I just wanna say thank you to Debbie Schneier of Soho Supper Club, because he's the one that introduced us. And he said, what you must know about YY before anything else is that he has a great sense of humor. And so I wanna know, how did you, before we even get into the the important talk of what is Chabad and the secrets of Chabad. I want to ask you, how did you get the nickname YY? The nickname YY, I think when I was born, they asked the following question, why? Why? And for the rest of my life, I'm trying to uh, justify that question and give an answer. Well, in all sincerity, my Hebrew name is Yosef Yitzchak. Yosef Yitzchak, Joseph Isaac, but in Hebrew they both begin with the letter Y. When I got married, my mother-in-law, who's five-generation American, Pittsburgh, grandparents, Pittsburgh platform, you know, real American Jews, five generations, not like me, my parents were immigrants. She had a hard time pronouncing Yosef Yitzchak. You know, not all Americans can give us that ches, the challah. So my mother-in-law said, you know what, it's YY. And why, why it was. You're seeing it's Yud Yud, which is also an acronym for God. Yud Yud is an acronym for God, yeah. If I could see myself always as a divine ambassador, I uh, will live the life I'm supposed to live. You are an ambassador, and Chabad is often seen as a very activist movement that really focuses on ambassadorship. But at the center of it, it's a very intellectual movement, and it draws on the deepest Kabbalistic theology and ideas. I would love you to start by telling us what is the most profound intellectual idea that is at the heart of the Chabad philosophy? I think uh, one of one of the profound and for me very powerful and inspiring ideas at the heart of Chabad philosophy. It's really at the heart of Judaism, but Chabad has really, you know, went, ran, ran with this idea is the radical emphasis of oneness, of cosmic, spiritual, psychological harmony, that the universe is one, that the planet is one, that all of reality is really an aspect of divine infinity, that the integration and unity lie at the core of science, physics, psychology, theology, and all aspects of wisdom 
And Torah, the role of Torah is to reveal that oneness and that harmony. And the practical consequence of that is that if we can really appreciate our oneness and appreciate the divine providence that pervades all of reality, we discover that there's no such a thing that I am in an emotional hell. Every situation I'm in is really a mission. I am sent to transform darkness into light and compartmentalization and fragmentation into oneness. I remember there was a teenager who I knew struggled terribly, psychologically and emotionally, a lot of stuff. And he wrote a letter to the Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory, and Rabbi Schneis, and he said, you know, why me? Why me? And I thought the Rebbe would be nice and empathetic and say, you know, I'm here for you and go to this professional. The Rebbe wrote that, but he also wrote something spectacular. He wrote to this child, to this youngster. He said, you have an infinite light inside of you. By working through these challenges, and only by working through these challenges, you will discover your infinite resources and you will change the world. And it's really a perspective where your life is never messed up. My life is not, even if I have challenges and toxicity and trauma to deal with. Because I am a divine soul sent on a mission. And if I have challenges, it's because I was sent into that place to reveal the incredible light that exists in that space and inside of myself. What mission? I love this idea. You know, I share a deep uh, roots in the Chabad movement from my own family, but what mission would you encourage people to feel in this moment when we are so fractured? How do you feel like each person should be living each day yes. right now? I think I have to, when I wake up in the morning, this is what I learned from my teacher. When I wake up in the morning, I can have one of two attitudes. Either I am a victim a victim to the circumstances, a victim to my problems, a victim to the world problems, or I can see myself as an ambassador of God to bring light, love, healing, awareness, authenticity, wisdom, closeness, and redemption. Either I am part of the problem or I am part of the solution. So we're never naive. I remember the president of Israel, the third president of Israel, his name was Zalman Shazar. Well, I was a young child, but I saw the, rec- the video, and he came to visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe, came from Israel, and he came to New York, and he wasn't used to, as you're not used to, the January winters in New York City. <laughs> you know what a January, February winter in New York City is? Worked for three years. Yeah, I know. So you, are, so, so you know, somehow, <laughs> I always say, I don't know why global warming favors Miami and Los Angeles, but maybe one day New York as well. So in any case... I, uh, the president of Israel comes and he sees the Lubavitcher Rebbe and he sees, he says to him, the new, the, as Simon and Garfunkel sing, the New York City winter is freezing me. He says to the Rebbe, it's cutting through my bones in Yiddish. It's cutting through my bones. How do you deal with this cold? You know, and I thought the Rebbe would say, you know, you got to get a warm coat. You got to get a warm coat. You got to stay in the, you know, you got to stay in the, in a warm home. Without skipping a beat, he said, That's why God sent down our souls into the world to bring warmth where there's coldness and light where there's darkness. It was a cute, humorous response, but I think it encapsulates a powerful idea. 
When you see a space, a community, a home, an environment, a country that is so fragmented and so suspicious and so divisive and so mistrusting, and there may be some serious disagreements, nothing wrong with that. But I have to ask myself, will I become just another kvetch and a victim? Or I say, you know what? I'm going to become the source of love. When you see me in the marketplace, in the store, in the synagogue, walking in the street, on Zoom, you will see in me a source of love, a source of compassion. When you become that person, you create by osmosis and also in a very real, revealed way, a change in the energy field around you. And it has a, a ripple effect. I always tell my students, learn from the coronavirus. A short man living in Wuhan, China, told his wife, I'm going out to the marketplace to buy an insect for dinner. As is the custom in Wuhan, China. If you would have asked this man, do you have any leadership qualities or any significance in the cosmic picture? He would say, me? I'm just a little China guy, Chinaman trying to make ends meet. Little did he know that inadvertently he carried home a virus the size of 125 nanometers, and a few months later, 7.7 billion people were affected. Well, my teacher taught us, if this is true about viruses, it's much more true about love, light, and unity. So beautiful to be able to flip what would typically be a victim story into an empowerment story. And I think that is one of the first secrets of Chabad, as you've shared. So I think so. I, I know so. Or I, I know so to the degree that I know. So for those of you that are aware of Shabbat observance, there's no recordings in Shabbat services. And so I understand that the Rebbe would often sit and give these long divrei Torah, or just maybe not long, but divrei Torah, and there was handpicked certain students that would sit at his feet and their job was to memorize word for word, literally to be the recording device. And it was a very prestigious job and that you were serving in that position by the time you were 15, which is, I know no one who was serving in that position. And then the minute Shabbat was over, you rushed to write it down is what I understood. So what was it like to be so close to the Rebbe, to be so close in his proximity? It was quite a difficult task, to be honest. Until today, I have to be honest, when Saturday night comes, my wife knows, when Shabbos ends, I get into a, a, a little bit of a challenging mood because I still have the memory of the stress of the responsibility Long it was, the Rebbe could speak for three, four, five, six, seven, eight hours. And over a holiday of a few days, it can be between 10 and 20 hours of brilliant material about Kabbalah, mysticism, psychology, Talmud, Bible, law, current events, the human condition, the Jewish state of affairs, the world state of affairs, geology, geography, history, science, physics, Jewish spirituality, Jewish philosophy. And it was a mosaic. He would create a tapestry studying Talmud and Maimonides and other philosophers and the Hasidic masters. And to remember all of it was really very, very difficult, but it was electrifying. It was electrifying because I felt that I'm sitting at the feet of one of the greatest minds of a generation, 
one of the greatest souls and hearts of a generation, somebody who combined incredible analytical genius and brilliance with a heart that was filled with love towards humanity. Love towards Were you selected? I mean, this sounds like for a 15-year-old, I don't know a 15-year-old that could do that. How were you selected? And- First of all, my brother wanted to keep me off the streets. <laughs> what were the streets? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, in a little shtetl called the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, where the Lubavitcher Rebbe lived. Both of my parents were Stalin's victims. They grew up in Soviet communist Russia in the 1930s and 40s. Very, very difficult My grandfather was arrested, sentenced to death, and then commuted to 25 years in Stalin's gulag. So my father grew up practically an orphan. His father made it out. They made it out of the Soviet Union. They came here as youngsters, as refugees. They ultimately arrived in New York. They met, they built their family in Brooklyn. That's where I grew up. I was born in the early 70s. My father was a journalist his entire life. He worked for Newsweek, for Herald Tribune, for Israeli Yidiyat Achronot, he opened up his own Yiddish newspaper. He was a very colorful personality. And my brother, I have an older brother, Simon Jacobson, who was on this team of oral scribes of the Rebbe. And when he told me when, he was, when I was a child, he noticed that I had a niche for it. So already as a young child, you know, he would ask me to review things. And then when I became a teenager, he really asked me to join the group. It was not easy. I was jealous of my friends. You know, Saturday night, you eat pizza, you eat falafel, you go bowling, you chill out, you hang out. And I was really uh, uh, taken from that relaxed environment. And this great responsibility was imposed upon me and my colleagues. So there was a difficult part to it. But on on another level, it also felt historic. I felt like I was really part of the history of the transmission of Jewish wisdom, scholarship, and knowledge from Moses thousands of years later to the Rebbe. Because when the Rebbe spoke, there was a flow of consciousness, and you really felt that there was an infinite, he was a conduit for the infinite wisdom of Torah. And we knew it's not going to be recorded. If we don't remember it, it will be lost forever. So imagine, Sherry, you're sitting at the feet of a master, and you know, that you're going to hear now ideas, secrets, brilliant insights, intricate ideas about life, about psychology, about Judaism, about Torah, real wisdom, real wisdom based on 3,000 years of scholarship. But it's not going to be repeated, it's not taped, and you have the responsibility to record it in your mind. That's what it felt like. So there was a certain electrifying historic urgency as we stood there. What it was he most passionate about through your 15-year-old eyes? And would you say it's the same today? Excellent, excellent question. What I felt, just the truth is, that the Rebbe was, was he, he, he didn't speak, he was not a regular orator in the sense he would not, you know, take off his glasses and put on his glasses and lift up his hands and make jokes and tell stories you know, sometimes his voice was, was, was monotone, but the passion, the commitment you felt was unwavering. And I would say the themes that I felt that he really, he was passionate about everything he said, I should say, but what he really was so passionate about was the love for every single soul. 
The Rebbe could not tolerate divisiveness, hatred, fragmentation, narcissism, uh, apathy, indifference, carelessness, and also the eternal covenant that God made with the Jews as a light unto the world to revolutionize the landscape of planet Earth and bring healing and love and redemption to the world. These were, these were uh, great, great passions of his. You, you saw how that, serious it was. Right, I can hear that that's how you hear it today. Was that how you heard it then? To be, to be really, really honest, that's a great question. And the truth is, people often ask me, what is the prerequisite to remember hours of material? And sometimes somebody will have a conversation with me and say, you remember what I told you last week? And I say, I don't. You have to remind me. I say, I don't understand. You memorized the Lubavitcher Rebbe for hours and you can't remember what I told you last week. I don't know how to break the news to them that what they told me last week, I didn't feel was as historic, as significant. But we won't go into that. But the truth is the prerequisite for memorizing is no analysis, complete suspension of the intellectual ego and opening myself up like an empty vessel just to absorb without judgment. Why is it that children listen so, absorb everything, and adults have such a hard time to absorb? Why is it that my three-year-old, 10 years later, reminds me what I told him when he was three years old? And I don't even remember. The answer is because children know how to listen. As adults, we always have opinions. Sherry, be honest. I always tell this to my audiences. I say, you're listening to me or you're judging me? You're saying, oh, he's good. He's not bad. I don't like him. He's boring. He's interesting. We don't listen. We have opinions even if we think we're listening. The prerequisite to absorb real wisdom is I don't have anything going on in my brain. I am just open, empty. I'm a conduit. I'm a channel for your truth. So really, when I was listening to the Rebbe, I knew that there's no formulating my opinions, my ideas. He's good. He's excellent. He's awesome. It was just allow me to be a channel. And paradoxically, that's how you retain it forever. And do you use that skill in your marriage with your wife and your children? (laughs) Good question. Good question. That you have to discuss with my mother-in-law and my wife and my children. I think uh, for me to answer that question wouldn't be right. They probably have different opinions about it, but at least I should say that I try to do that. (laughs) I try to listen. I try to listen. As I always say, the most important part of communication is listening. And it's the hardest part of communication. Really, really listening. I used to watch how the Rebbe would listen to people. And all people, black, white, Jews, non-Jews, religious, non-religious, men, women, children, little children. And I learned that the real greats take the child very, very seriously because they tune in, they realize that in every person there is infinity. There's a fragment of God. And therefore, if there's something in a person, if you cannot find something in every person that inspires you, you're not in tuned with the soul, with the energy of the cosmos. You're on an ego trip. You're, 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 you have to be, you need to emancipate yourself. Let's pivot because there's so much there, but I want to pause. 
A lot of secular Jews come into contact with the Chabad community in surprising ways. Maybe there's someone, there's a Hanukkah festival at the Century City Mall, or maybe someone's asking you to put on tefillin, or maybe there's a Chabad couple reaching out in your community. Help us understand um, how those Chabad leaders are there to shape us and grow us as opposed to create fear in us, as I often hear. Wonderful. I think one of their greatest secrets, and it's very moving to me, and it's, I think, a credit to their teacher who really inculcated with them, who inculcated this within them is, when you sit with them, or you schmooze with them, or you hang out with them, you don't feel judged. There's no hierarchy. I'm a good Jew, you're a bad Jew, you're a good Jew, I'm a bad Jew. There's a real appreciation of what we call in Hasidic literature, the neshama, the soul. And nobody knows whose soul is greater. And in God's eyes, we're all children. It's like a mother. You say, who's your favorite child? A real mother? Every child has their unique blessing that they bring into the world. Some children have different challenges than others. Some children have different strengths than others. Sometimes I may disagree with a a path that my child takes. But the love is always there, the commitment, the trust, the respect, the dignity to every person. And I think Jews of all backgrounds, they feel it. You can't fake this. You could, you know, you could fake it for a little bit, as Lincoln says, you know, you can't fool the whole world all the time. I think it comes from a very genuine appreciation to look beyond the superficialities and really connect to people on the inside without judgment and no stereotypes. How do you do that? I love the aspirational vision, but we even hear of in the from and Hasidic communities, people judging one another. Your skirt's not long enough. Your kippah's not black enough. Whatever it is, there seems to be so much judgment. Excellent and yet- question. Excellent question. And I think the real, the real answer for this is, you know, we're used to extremes. If you have strong religious positions, you have to be dismissive of others who don't agree with you. And if you embrace everybody, it's because you don't have such strong convictions, let's say, in certain areas. I think one of the most refreshing paradoxes of the Chabad movement, and I saw this in the Rebbe himself, and it always intrigued me, it still does, was a paradox. On one hand, he had very deep, unwavering convictions. His dedication to Jewish tradition, to Torah, to Jewish law, to mitzvot, was, let's call it, very, very, very powerful and very potent. And yet, his tolerance of diversity and his lack of judgmentalism and his appreciation for every person where they are was incredible. It's like the paradox of a tree. The deeper the roots, the more anchored the tree is, the further its branches could spread out. And one depends on the other. He was anchored in such a confident Judaism. It was so deep and there was so much self-confidence. He didn't have to be dismissive. He didn't have to be judgmental. He can really, I never saw such a colorful person. He really celebrated people, their journeys, their diversity. He can tune into their godliness, to their soul. Number one, and I think number two, you have to know the difference between worshiping religion and worshiping God. A lot of us, we worship religion, culture, tradition. God is imageless. I have to get my ego out of the way. 
and become a conduit for divine love. And then I see God's image wherever I look. It's a whole different picture. What happens often is religion can become about my personal ego trip. It's about me and my spiritual ego. And I think that limits us. It makes us much more judgmental. When I have a real relationship with God, it's not about my ego versus your ego. It's really about me being a conduit for God's love in this world. And I see the positive in you. And I want to bring out the positive in you. And it doesn't mean we're not allowed to have this disagreement, but it never becomes personal. It never becomes divisive and petty. There's no pettiness. By the Rebbe, there was no pettiness. There was no mediocrity. There was always a largeness of spirit. The Rebbe passed away 25 years ago. His movement is stronger than ever and growing rapidly. One, what do you think he would say in this moment because there is so much judgment and so much divisiveness? And two, how is Chabad different without him? And do you think it's been damaged without him? Great questions. Great questions. <laughs> I, I'm enjoying your questions. They're making me think, you know, it's good for rabbis to think. We don't always think. <laughs> We're sometimes on cruise control, which is not good. I would say, I would say there were three things that the Rebbe taught constantly. And that's why Chabad is where it is 25 years later. Number one, people didn't realize this when it was happening. The Rebbe did not create robots. He did not create students or followers. He created leaders. He taught people to take responsibility. It was never about him. It was about you. He would often say, somebody was said, you're shluchim, you're messengers in the world. He said, they're not mine. They're God's messengers in the world. I'm just a conduit for God. So he taught his students to take responsibility like he did. Don't be a follower. Don't be a disciple. Don't let me convince you. The Rebbe managed to light a fire in their bellies. So when he died, people thought Chabad would would, you know, decline. What happened was, it became stronger because they felt personal responsibility. He did not like followers. He wanted people to take initiative, number one. Number two, if I could quote William Shakespeare, some people are born great, some people achieve greatness, some people have greatness thrust upon them. I would say, and this is the honest truth, if you ever met the Lubavitcher Rebbe, somehow he thrust greatness upon you. He did not believe that there are small people. He did not recognize it. I have friends from school. I'll be frank with you. I did not see them as very talented or grand people. I thought the trajectory of their life would be fairly nice, simple. And yet, somehow they became leaders. They're putting up buildings, creating organizations, schools, camps. I'm like, where did this happen? The answer is, the Rebbe believed in the greatness of people. And when somebody believes in you like that, you know what happens? You start believing in yourself that way. And the third thing, also I think a very powerful point was, he believed in the product. He showed that Torah can change the world and that the world wants healing. Don't be apologetic. Don't be on the defensive. Don't hide in a little shtibel. Don't think that you have to be mediocre. You have here powerful messages of Sinai that can bring healing to so many, so many people. Be proud. 
have that inner humility and dignity. And I think those three truths allowed Chabad to really prosper, even without the Rebbe. What he did was, when he died, you know what happened, I say? The Rebbe passed away, sadly, and suddenly I saw sprout from the ground two, three hundred thousand mini Lubavitcher Rebbes. One passed away, and 300,000 or more came in his stead. And I think that was a tribute to what real mentorship is. We think we can all learn from it. Real mentorship is create people who will take responsibility like you, who will have your vision. Don't convince them and don't compel them. Inspire them from within. That will create eternity. ...you on that because... The Chabad movement really does inspire. I mean, kids go to college and they go to Shabbat dinner every Friday night at the Chabad house because it feels inspirational and aspirational. Um, how do you speak to the Reform, Conservative, the other movements that are not growing as fast and are struggling in this moment, not necessarily struggling worldwide, but struggling in a different way? How do you speak to that and what advice would you give? I would say two things. Don't dumb down your message. We often think, I think this is a wisdom of Chabad, we often think that to make Judaism appealing, we have to often dumb down the message. Respect the intelligence and the integrity of your university students. Expose them to everything. They will make choices, don't worry. (laughs) They're, They're kids. When they're learning physics or philosophy or political science or mathematics or biology, good educators, great universities try to expose them to the entire gamut of knowledge from Aristotle all the way to our day. Why with Judaism do we feel we have to filter it through many filters? Expose them to the whole Torah, to everything that's there. Let them feel it, let them understand it, let them learn it, let them study it, let them know about all the mitzvahs. Trust their soul, trust their intelligence, trust their wisdom. Kids today, they want a challenge. They want truth. They don't like diluted, compromised stuff. They want it, give it to them in the most raw way, like your therapist would give it to you in in the office. That's number one. And for that, I think what's also important is you have to educate yourself. Every rabbi and rebbitzin, any demographic you're from or any movement, educate yourself. Learn more, more. The more I learn, the more I'm inspired, the more I can inspire others. And finally, the last thing I would say, maybe this is the most important, is we have to be able to teach the relevance of Judaism. A Judaism that's dead and archaic and lifeless and primitive, and its whole beauty is that it's a nice culture from our great-great-grandparents, it doesn't have the power to change my life. Why should I want to commit myself to Judaism just because gefilte fish sometimes tastes good? Okay, it's a nice thing. I think it's so important for all of us to tune in to the timeless spirituality and relevance of Judaism to our marriages, to our sexuality, to our mental health, to our self-healing, to our environment, to who we are personally and collectively. People want meaning, they want purpose, they want love, they need love. I think if Judaism can speak to the soul and heart of the contemporary Jew, it's a game changer. Interesting that you say that, because I think 
young people are really searching for spirituality. Very. They're dubious of institutions yeah. and religion. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. yeah. One, of, one of my best jokes, Sherry, one of my best jokes is a Chabad rabbi Friday night is looking for a minion. He only has nine people. And he meets somebody in the street. He looks like a Jew. He says, could you come into the synagogue? We need a tenth. The guy says, I don't believe in organized religion. And the Chabad rabbi says, really? That's great. Do I look organized? The bottom line is that, yeah, people are weary of institutionalized religion, of dogma. They need to see the creativity, the infinity, and the expansive horizons. I think this is, this is critical. And no judgmentalism. We need much more love than judgment. Judgmentalism drives people away. The holier than thou does not work. Look at people's souls. And the only way I could see people's souls is if I see my own soul. I'm thinking about so many different things that I want to drill down on. This idea that each person has the potential for greatness feels like we all need a cheerleader to tell us that. Yeah. How do you think as a Jewish community we can inculcate that message into our youth and also into every single Jew? Because some Jews are like, I'm done. Yeah. We are all victims of trauma. And I don't only mean individual trauma that many of us have, or maybe all of us have, from childhood, from dysfunctional situations, from abuse, from various stuff inside or outside, that too. But I'm also talking about intergenerational trauma. Our people has been, have been through a lot. As, as many people, but you know, we take the cake. <laughs> it's been thousands of years of, of, of a lot of persecution. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of trauma. There is self-shame, there is self-hate, there is self-loathing, there is surrendering to despair and to mediocrity. And I think today Jewish leadership rests not in one or two or three iconic figures, even though it's wonderful to have them, but it really rests in you and you and you and me and us. Each and every single one of us must be a source of empowerment for people. If you're speaking to teenagers, you're speaking to youth in schools, in synagogues, in programs, in the street, invite your neighbor Friday night. Tell a teenager you may have trauma, but your infinity is more powerful than all your trauma. You could contain it. Let not your trauma define you. Let your greatness define you. And when each and every one of us becomes that person, I think we really can touch people's lives. Do you see the cultic figurehood of Judaism, like the Rebbe, getting replaced by a democratized Judaism? Do you see a new Rebbe emerging, or do you see that each one of us becoming our Rebbe is the future? Yeah. I, th- I don't see a new Rebbe emerging. I don't see, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I am humble about my, I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty humble about my ignorance in the sense that I also didn't see a lot of other things coming. So I don't know the future. But I think that we are getting ready for an age. You know, the prophet Jeremiah speaks about an age when he says, It's a beautiful verse. There will come a time we will not, one person will not teach the other. Because all will get to know me from the smallest to the greatest. And what we're talking about is getting to know me, God, means getting to know yourself. 
I think we want to reach a place where we all become in touch with our deepest, deepest, infinite core. And then although we always learn from each other, but ultimately it's your own personal relationship with divinity that turns you into a conduit for God in this world. That leads you not to be an observant Jew, but to be a passionate, committed Jew to God. Would you say then you're a from Jew? A little story to respond. My, my, my sister-in-law had a relative, an older woman who was not religious, let's put it that way. She was not orthodox, she was not religious. She was a little traditional in the sense that she did some stuff. And she came into the Rebbe because she donated the publication of a book of Psalms for her husband, who was religious. And the Rebbe began blessing her and her children to have Yiddish anachas, to have Yiddish anachas means to quell from the pleasure, Jewish pleasure that your children will give you. So she said in Yiddish, Rebbe, I'm not from, I'm not from, you got the wrong client. He looked at her, and he said unforgettable words. I have to say this in Yiddish, and I'll translate. Mein Tochter, mir veris from. My daughter, he called her my daughter. My daughter, we do not know who's from. And I, I love that response. Because we really, really do not know. You know, there's people who go visit the sick every day. There's people who selflessly are dedicated to kindness. That is a mitzvah that Hillel said. That is the whole Torah. The whole Torah is love your fellow like yourself. So them I will call not from, but somebody else who may do other great stuff and doesn't do that. So this whole, the external labels, they don't speak to me. Yes, there are cultural differences and traditional differences and you should not be naive. You know, we should all be aware, etc., but in terms of real, real from, I'm not a person who could define this one as from, that one is not from. It's, it's very sensitive, and only God really knows the deepest intimate secrets of the human soul. Our job is to inspire, to see the good, and to accentuate the potential and positive in every individual. The future have no denominations, no labels, so to speak? Does the future have no labels? And I say, exact same labels that the Torah has. We go back to Moses. Was Moses, did Moses have labels of denominations? Did Abraham have labels of denominations? Let's remember, the labels and denominations happened less than 300 years ago as a result of the Enlightenment that began in the late 1600s, the early 1700s, in England, in France, in Germany, then traveled to the East. And that's when Jews, because of societal pressure, and because of statements like Napoleon's general who said, to the Jew as an individual, we will give everything. To the Jew as a people, we will give nothing. 1807 or so. This created internal pressure for Jews to begin to define themselves. And all we did is, we all got stuck in our labels. I'm reform, I have to stay reform. I'm conservative, I'm orthodox, I'm ultra-orthodox, I'm reconstructionist, I'm renewal, I'm chabura, my favorite, I'm a bagel and lox Jew. I'm spiritual but not religious, and I say I'm physical but not religious. And I say, why go in there? We all become paralyzed from it. Let's call ourselves, I am the possible Jew. I don't want to stifle my growth. 
Why should a reform or conservative or orthodox or reconstructionist or feel, I am who I am and I'm stuck there? Life is about exploration, about expanding your horizons. I am the possible Jew, which means there's always more to learn, more to grow, more to celebrate, more to become aware. Allow yourself spiritual growth. I love that idea that the labels limit us and the unlimited positive. All of us. They limit all of us. And it doesn't mean there's no disagreements. But, but these labels, I think it paralyzes people. It also creates phobias. It creates stereotypes. But you can also you know, have I, different beliefs, which is what you're saying. Like this person can believe that... Uh, one thing and that believe another, but that not limit you in the kind of Jew you are. That, that, is, that is one of the greatest secrets of the title of the secret of Chabad, simply Jewish. When they sit in front of us, what we would call a secular Jew, an assimilated Jew, there is no, I am this, you're this, I'm judging you, you're judging me. We're buddies, we're brothers, we're sisters, we're one family. Hitler in the gas chambers, gassed the most secular Jew with the same venom like the most religious Jew. And as the Rebbe always taught us, if you were Jewish enough for Mengele to send you to the gas chambers, you are Jewish enough for me to love you with all my heart. What's the one thing that every Jew or aspect of Judaism should know? That you are part of one of the greatest, if not the greatest story that has ever been told in the annals of humanity. You are an indispensable note in the cosmic symphony. Your soul was sent down by God for a mission to light up your home, your space, your soul, your environment. That you are carrying within yourself a torch, a baton, that was given to you over hundreds of generations. We endured through thick and thin based on the faith and the resilience that we are ambassadors to light up the world. Now, as we come closer to redemption, don't throw away the torch that was given to you and given to you with great sacrifice because it is a torch that can light up your life and our lives emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, physically, financially. And just as by Sinai, if one Jew was missing, the Midrash says, if one Jew was not there at Mount Sinai, the Torah could not be given. In a Torah scroll, if one letter is erased, one letter, the whole Torah is invalid. So if I'm a Jew in Borough Park, or Jerusalem, or Williamsburg, or Muncie, or Lakewood, it's not enough. If one letter is missing of the scroll, the whole Torah is invalid. And every one of us is a letter. We want your letter. We need your letter, your light, your contribution, your power, your celebration, your holiness, and your commitment to virtue. What if everyone believed we were a torch and had infinite value? What would our Jewish world look like then? I think we would, there's a beautiful word in Yiddish, it's called stolz. Stolz, they translate as pride, but pride could sound a little, like, a little arrogant. Stolz means an inner, deep awareness and confidence of who you are, who you're not, what your mission is, and what your power is. 
I think what I saw disturb the Rebbe so much was that people did not understand their power. They looked at themselves as petty victims. And he said, you don't get it. You are an ambassador of infinity. You're greater than you will ever imagine. And I think we all need to recover that story for our marriages, for our children, for our individual lives, wherever we are, and for our part as part of Jewish community and the Jewish world. And I think if we can all really see that and identify it, we can bring extraordinary light to millions of lives and ultimately our ultimate mission to billions of lives. The world is, I learned this from my experience over so many years, traveling to almost every corner of the world and speaking to non-Jews, as much as to Jews, and I have to say, you'll forgive me, that speaking to non-Jews in many ways is much easier. Oh, I agree. They are. <laughs> I once heard from Rabbi, late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who just passed away, sadly, last Shabbat. And he once said, he said, read the prophets and you'll see whenever prophets speak to Jews, there is resistance. There's only one prophet that they listen to, it's Jonah. You know why? Because he's not talking to Jews. He's talking to non-Jews. So they're wonderful audiences, but I have found time and time again, the world is ashamed by Jews who are embarrassed with their own Judaism. The world cherishes and respects Jews who respect Judaism. I cannot think of more powerful words to end on. I just want to sit at your feet for hours and hours like you you sat at the Rebbe's feet because (laughs) your Torah is so powerful. And you've not only given us secrets, but you've given us real chizuk, real strength today. Thank you. And I think the Rebbe really taught you well to inspire every human to be... That's a compliment. That that compliment I will take with me. Thank you. You really did because you inspire in your words, each of us to be our best selves. And I'm Thank so you. moved by your Torah today, and I hope that we'll have many opportunities in the future. Indeed, this is just the beginning of our journey together. I want to remind everybody, you can find so all of the teachings of Rabbi uh, YY at yeshiva.net and on his website. He is an incredible teacher. And if this is just a taster bite of what's there, if you're the- new to be a- TheYeshiva.net and we'll put it in our Q&A. I want to remind everybody that Biyachat Spirited by JAJU is a non-denominational and non-political organization. We want to bring Torah Jewish wisdom to the world and I can't think of a day where we had a job well done. Truly. Thank you so much. It was a privilege to speak to you. Sherry, and a privilege to speak to all of you who are listening and tuning in. Really, really my privilege. And I want to really bless myself and bless all of us to always remember that we have the choice to empower ourselves and to empower others. There are those who watch things happen. There are those who make things happen. And there are those who want to know what happened. Let's try to be from the group that makes things happen. Amen. To all of you, stay well, be well. I look forward to seeing you soon. Gazagazan. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. 
make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.